Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Uh, good evening, everybody. Thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, welcome to the Commonwealth Club's Marine Conversation Series. Uh, it's great to see all of you here tonight. Many of you have been here to other Commonwealth Club Marine Conversation events. Great. Well, this is a sold-out event, so uh, thank you for making it so popular. Uh, my name is Bruce Robbie. I'm on the Board of Governors with the Commonwealth Club, and I'm also the CEO of Relevant Wealth Advisors. We're a wealth management company, and uh, we're the sponsor of this series, along with several other sponsors, including the Marine Community Foundation. Uh, if you use social media, feel free afterwards to share the event uh, with your social media. That would also be helpful as we try to spread the word about bringing the Commonwealth Club into Marin County. Tonight, we're going we're gonna to take a leap and, and look at a global issue, which uh, is uh, very timely. I'm going to get off the stage. Thank you all for coming tonight. And I'm going to turn it over to Hans Schluga and James Kenneth Galbraith. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Well, thank you for being here this evening. I come all the way from Berkeley, California. It's a long trip, as you know. <laughs> and our friend James is coming from Austin, Texas, so uh, not so far away. Um, our topic is Europe, uh, and in particular, this book, uh, Visions for Europe, which puts together a manifesto, a number of essays on where Europe is moving or where it should be moving to. And that's what we want to discuss. But uh, there are, of course, many other questions you might have about Europe today, and we hope to get to them at some point as well. So questions about the recent European elections, what they mean, what they signify, that's definitely relevant to this book as well. And the second set of questions I'm thinking of is Europe after Brexit. So not the question, uh, how did it Brexit ever come into being and what's going to happen with Brexit, but assuming that it is going to happen, what's going to happen after that, and how does this program that this book tries to develop bear on these new realities? Uh, so let me start with a very straightforward question. So this book is published under the aegis of an organization calling itself Democracy in Europe Movement 25, Right. Maybe you can tell us something about what this movement is and what it wants to do. Okay, well, thank you, and it's a, a, pleasure, a pleasure to be here. I'm uh, a, a little bit in the position that uh, President Lincoln uh, found himself on the night before the Gettysburg Address, and he was roused from his inn by people demanding a speech. He said, I have no speech to give, and therefore I wish you a good evening. With the, uh, so <laughs> I, I, I'm not... I, I, I'll say just a few words uh, by way of introduction about the state of Europe and this project. And the state of Europe is almost unrelievedly bleak uh, at the present time. And when you think about its broad political uh, contours, uh, you have, on the one hand, a, uh, a traditional European leadership – uh, which has been divided between the major parties of the center-right and the center-left, the Social Democrats and uh, the Christian Democrats and uh, in Germany, for example. Uh, both elements of which are in steep decline and yet continue to dominate uh, the leadership of the European institutions 
uh, in a way which has put them in an exceedingly defensive posture with respect to practically every challenge that's coming before them uh, and has led to a kind of uh, uh, stasis and stagnation uh, in the way in which this European project uh, is being managed and being led. Uh, and I think there's really no dispute about that. Uh, what has arisen uh, in the wake of the economic crisis uh, has been uh, very unfortunately uh, a set of uh, movements which have been anti-European. Uh, the word populist is not one that I like to use to describe them. Uh, I would divide them between uh, a kind of... Uh, uh, National right-wing nationalism, uh, xenophobic nationalism of the right, uh, and a, a defensive nationalism of the left, uh, both of which uh, have uh, either reached their limits or, in the case of the nationalisms of the left, really suffered rather serious declines in the most recent European parliamentary elections. So you have the national, what used to be the National Front, the Rassemblement National, now is in in France, and you have the alternative for Deutschland and Germany, and you have, uh, uh, well, you have, you do have the case of the Liga, which is actually the government of Italy uh, and the dominant partner in the coalition, and you have the more extreme cases in Poland and Hungary. Uh, these are, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the uh, right wing in France did. Uh, outpoll the, the government party in the last European elections, probably at their peak strength or even a little bit below their peak strength. Uh, still very strong forces. Uh, and the question before Europe is, what's the alternative to these two very substantially unsatisfactory uh, political uh, uh, political forces, political trends, uh, and particularly now that the idea of a viable progressive movement outside of Europe, uh, a progressive movement that goes back as uh, was the case of Mélenchon's party, La France Insoumise, uh, to a earlier vision of a kind of national uh, welfare state, national uh, industrial policy, has been basically uh, lost its 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 appeal with the European voter. Well, that's where uh, this project, the Democracy in Europe movement, comes in. Uh, it is an effort to try to refashion a uh, progressive vision for Europe uh, that is uh, independent of and quite different from and far more hopeful than either uh, the anti-European uh, right-wing movements, which have a, re a real risk of drifting in certain cases toward a kind of neo-fascism, uh, or uh, the uh, stagnant and unimaginative uh, and essentially failed leadership uh, of the present uh, European institutions. And this book is a, a substantial collection of short essays by a very wide range of European uh, political and uh, scholarly figures, uh, ranging from Slavoj Žižek uh, of uh, Croatia to the 
a very intrepid and dynamic prime minister of Iceland, Katrin Jakobsdottir, and uh, many people in between, uh, and a smattering of of, of American hangers-on, including yours truly. Uh, uh, and we've united broadly under the guidance of uh, the former Greek finance minister and uh, economics professor, and my, my good friend Yanis Varoufakis, who has been kind of the driving force and inspiration. But the idea really is a trans-European party, trans-European movement that may come to be a party uh, which would... Uh, provide a vision of both democracy, a kind of New Deal-oriented economic policy, and a much more open and progressive social policy, a frank repudiation of the uh, xenophobic and, uh, frankly, racist tendencies that are uh, so so evident in much of Europe today. So uh, can you elaborate a little more on your relationship with Yanis? Um, You told me that it's been of long standing. It's very important to you. I, I first got to know Yanis Varoufakis when he was still just an economics professor in Athens uh, in uh, 2010, 2011, and I discovered his writings uh, through his blog, which were uh, represented, to my mind, most uh, energetic and uh, you know really protean commentary on the unfolding European crisis and written from the spot where that crisis was uh, the most uh, appalling, which was which was in Greece. I got to know him personally in 2011 uh, and uh, over a period of a couple of years arranged and persuaded various powers that be that he should be giving a visiting appointment at the University of Texas. So came when we worked together for a couple of years in Austin, uh, including arranging some pan-European meetings, including a rather fateful one that brought a young political leader uh, to the United States for the first time, a completely unknown and widely, uh, uh, what shall we say, uh, I wouldn't say feared, but uh, ostracized figure by the name of Alexis Tsipras. Uh, and uh, from there, Giannis ran for the Greek parliament in the elections of 2015, was elected with the largest plurality of any Greek politician in that vote, became finance minister a few days later, and I got an email that said, get here as soon as you can, so what is a professor to do but to get on an airplane and go? And uh, It was uh, complicated by the fact he'd just done his first tour and had shown up uh, in the Uh, doorway of 11 Downing Street uh, wearing a leather jacket uh, that he had had to borrow from the Greek ambassador to France because uh, his bag had been left behind in a taxi in Athens. Uh, and his wife, the artist Denise Stratu, said, oh my God, he looks like a mid-level Russian mafia boss. Uh, so then uh, I was in Austin at the time, so I carried a cashmere coat to clean up Yanis's image and brought it to the finance ministry on the first day of the government, February 8, 2015. And that inaugurated four or five very interesting months that ended with a referendum and Yanis's resignation in July of 2015. And we've continued to work together as he's uh, uh, moved on to try and, and forge a, a truly pan-European progressive project. So um, I expressed some... Uh 
doubts about, uh, to your earlier, about this question, to what extent is Varoufakis really capable of becoming a political leader? He seems to me more of a provocateur, somebody who has lots of interesting ideas, but maybe not really, truly, ultimately a politician. Uh, and I take, I have two reasons for thinking so. The first one is, um, as you know, he um, advised Tsipras, the prime minister, to accept the financial proposals, demands of the Troika during the financial crisis. And then the very next day he resigned. And it seems he to me. He didn't advise them to accept them, no. Yes, he he, that's what he himself says. He advised them to accept it. And then he resigned. No, 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 that's uh, not correct. That's what he said. I was there. Uh, uh, <laughs> I was there that night uh, of the referendum. Yes. Uh, there was a general expectation that the government's position on the, its stated position, on the referendum would lose, that the Greeks would vote yes to accept the terms. Uh, I didn't think so. Uh, or that at most, they would be a kind of a mixed result, 53, 54% no. And instead, it was a re- really ast- astounding and uh, powerful 61% no. Uh, Giannis went that night uh, to actually issued a public statement, uh, which was then almost immediately rebuked by the prime minister's office. Uh, And he went that night to try to persuade Alexis to take a strong stand uh, in the further round of negotiations. But it was clear when he walked into Maximus, the prime minister's uh, uh, home, and that uh, that the cards were stacked against him. Uh, and that he had really no choice but to resign, which he did the next morning. So he resigned in anticipation of the rejection, uh, of the acceptance of the uh, of those terms, not because he recommended it. Um, well, so um, I, I think, so I see in the, um, if I look at the preface here of this book, that he does say that he recommended the acceptance of the Troika proposal and then resigned. So maybe that's a mistaken statement. But anyway, that's what he seems to be saying here. Yeah. Um, he certainly wasn't recommending not, it on his own yeah. own, yeah. own behalf. Yeah. I mean, he may have said you have no choice, but that's yeah. – I don't think he said that. My, my, my understanding of his position yeah. then and now is that he was opposed to accepting yeah. it, that he wanted to have – you know, that, this, that you basically had to stand with the population. So my thought was that – if he was truly a politician, he would have either advised against the proposal very strongly or he would have stayed in his place as finance minister. Uh, but my, my second consideration is that uh, this movement, Democracy in Europe movement, did field a series of candidates in this current election, in this recent election. Uh, it refused to enter any kind of coalition uh, agreements with any other grouping um, and as a result it, it fielded its own candidates it did gain one, almost one and a half million votes across Europe but it won no single seat Right, and I think in this kind of dogmatism uh, which I see in, also in some of Varoufakis' thinking, um, I see a lack of political understanding Well it's a question of what what Windows or even uh, cracks were open for negotiation with a uh, with a party which had up to that point no presence 
in the on the European political scene. I'm not, although Yanis did forge coalitions, for example, in France with Benoit Hamon. Uh, had a, a, a he ran, of course, for a seat in Germany. Uh, he had good candidates in Denmark and in uh, Portugal. They, yes, it's true. They did not get a seat. They should have gotten one in Greece. They uh, at the early exit polls that night, and I was in Athens and watching the results. They showed at four point five to two point five percent, which would have been above the threshold. And it basically what happened was that the vote was drawn out over several days on the last 20%, and it ended up about 500 votes, as I'm told now, below the threshold for actually having a single seat in the European Parliament. But the reality is, get close to 3% in Greece, and you are a political force. It is probably the case that the reason there are general elections being held in Greece now is that the government does not want Mira 25, which is the Greek party, uh, to have be able to consolidate that three percent and go up further, uh, be, uh, in a sort of very short time between now and the elections, it's designed to make that as difficult as possible. We'll see what happens. Uh, but to say that they're not a political force, they're just getting started here. Let's see what happens as time goes on. The book has just been published. Let's not uh, remainder it immediately. I, 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 want you, I want you all to read it first and see if you find some of the arguments compelling. And then, then we'll get along to see whether we can build, begin to build a movement as time goes on. Yes. So um, in some ways, the, the volume was a publication in preparation for this election campaign. It contains the ma- political manifesto on which this movement ran in the election campaign. But it is, of course, much more. You're quite right there. And what we should be hearing from you, maybe some little summary of what this movement actually stands for. What's distinctive about it? What's distinctive about it? Uh, I would say uh, basically three major things. First of all, there is a very uh, broad and quite uh, specific set of proposals for democratizing, uh, I should say wide-ranging and specific set of proposals for democratizing European institutions, for making them transparent, for making them responsive. These are the things that they are manifestly not, uh, and and a major reason why European institutions have been losing uh, the uh, uh, confidence of European voters. Fundamentally, Brussels is viewed as what it is, a large, highly bureaucratic institution, strongly dominated by what are called technocrats, but who are in fact servants of the financial and corporate elites. There is a very weak democratic presence at the European center, and the first thing to do is to strengthen that presence. The second thing is to sp- Uh, to sketch out a set of economic proposals that can begin to uh, bring about some stabilization of the European economic condition. The problem of that economic condition, by and large, is that you have Europe is divided in two, between creditors and debtors, north and south. Uh, And what has happened in the wake of the crisis is that the economies of the Mediterranean, literal of Europe, from Greece to Italy, lesser degree Spain, but, uh, Portugal, but uh, for special reasons, uh, but also the, a large, to a large degree France, have stagnated. They have, and in fact, in Italy, gone, uh, Italy has not recovered its peak GDP in 10 years. Greece is 10 or 20 or maybe 25 points still below 
uh, where it reached in, in, in the first 10 years of the, of the Eurozone. So you have countries which have been, uh, which are open wounds, essentially, and where the uh, European project has lost its allure. Italy was a core founding major European power. The Treaty of Rome was signed in Rome. Uh, Italians were perhaps most strongly wedded to the European project. This is no longer true. The need now is to have a set of programs which transforms the situation in the same way that the American New Deal uh, provided an economic transformation of the American South in the 1930s and onwards into the 40s and 50s for this legacy of what Roosevelt did uh, and created a strong national economy at the continental scale uh, by essentially providing the mechanisms uh, for uh, kind of regional convergence, which has occurred over our lifetimes. This is not going on in Europe, quite the reverse. And the consequences of that are to make the European Union untenable and certainly the Eurozone untenable over the medium and certainly the long term. That has to be reversed. Then, in addition to that, on the economic front, there's obviously a very strong need to pursue the energy transformation. So that adds a green element to the New Deal and a very strong need to build at the European level the kind of social programs that we have at the continental level at the United States. There is a kind of vision in this country that the Europeans have these wonderful socialists or social democracies and the U.S. is kind of a country without one. Lots of Europeans think this way. But while that has some element of truth at the national level, various countries, particularly the wealthier ones, have good universal health care, for example, it is not true at the European level as a whole. Vast inequalities exist across countries and there are vast divergences and a lot of poverty uh, that has really engulfed the uh, countries of Southern Europe since the crisis. This has to be dealt with. And the third major uh, element is a social element, which deals, as I said earlier, with the uh, with the kind of uh, with the xenophobia, with the uh, racism that has uh, been. Uh, uh, aggravated by political leaders who have sought to blame Europe's problems on migrants. Uh, and Europe is going to have lots and lots of migrants. There's no way to stop it. It is a, 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 uh, The only question is how dangerous is it for them to reach Europe and how desperate is their position when they get there and what happens to them. And DM 25 believes that the principles of international law and the principles of basic human decency require that Europe deal with its, mig- with its migrants, with the incoming populations from the Middle East, from Africa, from wherever, from South Europe to North Europe, uh, with a uh, welcoming uh, and uh, both legally and economically and humanly correct position. So those three things, are, are, I take it as the major pillars uh, to which we would hope you know, Europeans would, dis- would subscribe. So I find myself disagreeing somewhat with the idea that the Europeans are disaffected from the European institutions. Uh, in the recent uh, European elections, more than 50% of European voters took the chance and voted, went to vote. Uh, the numbers get much higher in some countries. In Belgium, it was 88.5% of the voters. In Denmark, 66%. In Spain, 64%. In Germany, Germany is 61%. And uh, I think voters have become 
increasingly gained understanding that these votes count, that the parliament has some power, that it is important for the Europeans to take a stand in relation to Trump and China um, uh, and Brexit, um, and that the parliament has an important voice there. I think we all see the effect of that in an increased legitimacy of the parliament, the European parliament, and an increasing influence, for instance, on the choice of the new uh, European Commission. Uh, another interesting fact is that the European Council of Foreign Relations conducted a very extensive poll in uh, April and May this year, uh, 50,000 Europeans across a number of countries with in-depth interviews, and the conclusion was that two-thirds of the Europeans feel extremely positively about the European Union. Uh, at the same time, however, this is very interesting and disturbing in certain ways, many of those also feel, a majority in fact, feel that uh, the EU as it exists now in its present form may not be with us in the next 10 to 20 years. Uh, and 30% of those questions even said the possibility of war in Europe was on the horizon. Um, Nevertheless, I think we get a more complicated picture, right? It's not just uh, an undemocratic set of European institutions and a disaffected population. Things are moving, moving in the direction that Varoufakis and this uh, democracy, democracy in Europe movement uh, wants, right? They are moving that way. The question is, how are they doing that, right? Question is, say again? Uh, the question is, how, how are things moving in this direction towards greater democratic, legitimized, and a stabilized order in Europe? Well, I think the view expressed by my co-authors in the book uh, is that they are not moving in this direction with sufficient uh, speed, that the European Parliament uh, does not have the authorities that it needs to have to be a truly representative governing institution, uh, and that, in fact, uh, the uh, institutions which actually hold power uh, in Europe are uh, constituted undemocratically and opaque. Uh, the, uh, a nice example of this from our experience uh, in the, during the Athens Spring in 2015 is something called the Eurogroup. Now, I don't know if you know what the Eurogroup is. The Eurogroup is a body that consists of the finance ministers of the, uh, what, 18 countries or 19 countries of the Eurozone. It has no official standing, but it is nevertheless the body uh, that consolidates policy over this very large economic unit within the European Union, the single currency. Uh, now, how did it work? At those meetings, uh, which had no official, basically followed no rules of procedure uh, that were written down or that we could rely on, uh, a representative of the IMF or of the European Central Bank would be invited to give a uh, pricey of whatever issue was on the agenda. And the various finance ministers would, would say a few words expressing the views of their government and of their position within the government, and finance ministers are always the most conservative members of conservative governments. And then what would happen is that uh, the German uh, finance minister, Mr. Schäuble, 
uh, would uh, nod at which direction he wished the thing to go, and the uh, issue would be resolved in terms of the, whatever terms that Wolfgang Schäuble specified. And all of this completely behind closed doors, and the only reason we know how this worked is that Yanis Varoufakis was the uh, very unwelcome uh, dissident finance minister from Greece. And when he was making an effort to uh, express his views, express the views of his government, uh, which was the only government that was really out of uh, compliance or out of the consensus of this uh, very conservative uh, and very ultra-Orthodox uh, uh, group, uh, it was treated as uh, someone who was acting like a professor lecturing and so forth. They were not interested in what the view of the elected government of the Hellenic Republic was on these matters. So this is a, a problem. Uh, it's a, a, a similar problem with the European Central Bank, which is far less transparent than our own Federal Reserve. I spent a good part of my early career, by the way, as a staff member of the House Banking Committee uh, in the 1970s and early, and then in, on the Joint Economic Committee in the early 1980s. And my job uh, as a young man, was really a great job, was to pester central bankers, uh, just, to, just to try and see if you could get some information out of them once in a while. Uh, and initially, it was rather difficult with a very... Uh, let's say, stubborn individual like Arthur Burns. But eventually, uh, with Paul Volcker, we managed to really change the culture of the Federal Reserve. Uh, I didn't like Volcker's policies particularly, but he became much, the institution became much more uh, open and forthcoming, and that continued uh, through the uh, great obscurantist Alan Greenspan and then the very clear uh, and eloquent Janet Yellen uh, to have an institution which basically does speak uh, as to what his policies are and has a mandate to pursue uh, full employment for the whole country alongside rel reasonable price stability. It's not at all the case in Europe. Europe has a central bank that was created uh, in the monetarist era, in the neoliberal era, under the basically the aegis of the guidance of people like Milton Friedman, Friedrich von Hayek, uh, and has a very strict uh, charter and a very opaque proceeding. In the case of the Greeks in 2015, the European Central Bank pursued an active policy of destabilizing the Greek government in order to make it comply with their policy preferences. This is not the way democratic systems should function. So in terms of specific critique, there's a lot to be said about the way Europe does or doesn't function at the, uh, at, at, at the continental level. However democratic individual governments may be, they are subject to extraordinary pressures. This is not just Greece. Italy was blackmailed by the European Central Bank uh, in, under one of the early post-crisis governments. Uh, and in ways which, as I say, the democracy in Europe movement would put an end to by, by bringing a kind of transparency that we take for granted in this country doesn't exist presently at the European institutional level. So... Um, Uh, if I look at uh, when I look at this volume, I, uh, I think that two of the most interesting or the most interesting contributions to this volume are by Professor Galbraith. I recommend them very strongly to you. And he has particularly one intriguing and illuminating idea. Uh, the Democracy in Europe movement at some time calls this project it's calling for a European New Deal. 
And Professor Galbraith says, okay, let's compare it to the American New Deal, right? And that's, to my mind, a very intriguing idea. But clearly, we are fa we're dealing with two very different realities, right? America was an established republic. Um, the European project is a work of prog in progress, in uh, still being elaborated in some ways. All right, so well, I... what kind of comparison can one make? How is this helpful in understanding what is needed in Europe? Well, in a couple of ways, I think it is a very helpful comparison. Um, maybe three different ways. The first is that it evokes the idea of a major transformation. Roosevelt's uh, commitment to experiment, to try things. If they don't work, drop it and try something else. That's the first idea. Rather than sticking with the notion that you already know what the policy rules should be which clearly not working, you should do something else. That's the first point. Second point is that the, there is a willingness in this group, uh, which I find very refreshing as an American, uh, to break with the kind of traditional European and particularly European leftist view, and for that matter, American leftist view, of the relatively relative progressivism of these two societies. They're actually, in many ways, quite comparable, but they do have differences. And the typical European view has been the United States doesn't really have a welfare state. Well, that's, of course, we do have a welfare state. We have Medicare, we have Medicaid, we have Social Security, we have public universities. Now, all of these things on a scale that functions at the level of the entire continent. To what do we owe that? We owe that to the New Deal and the Great Society. It wasn't there before. What was there before was something that was in some ways quite comparable to Europe today, a system in which welfare policy, social welfare, was the responsibility of individual states. So you had Wisconsin, which was progressive. You had New York under Roosevelt himself, which was a progressive state, which had uh, – individuals and institutions that were developing uh, a what we would call the modern welfare state, but they didn't operate the level of the whole country, and they didn't exist at all in the South. And in the South, you didn't have any industrial development. You didn't have electric power. You didn't. You had a devastated environment that was the result of 300 years of plantation agriculture that had depleted the soil. You didn't have a conservation policy. You had throughout the plains, you had the Dust Bowl, an environmental disaster that was the effect of soil depletion and the effect of mechanization, the mechanical plowing on the soil. You didn't have trees. You didn't have trees in the east of the United States. Those trees that are there now were planted in the New Deal when Roosevelt and in Roosevelt's in, in, uh, governorship in New York, taking up exhausted farming, uh, agriculture, buying up those lands, planting them in trees so that they could be regenerated and do something useful when they could no longer serve effectively as farms. So there is a kind of uh, policy idea here that what Europe needs is something like what the United States did in the, in the New Deal. It's not just Keynesian policy, spend more, tax less. It's about coming up with a strategy to reconstruct the region so that you can put an end to the strong bias toward migration, which was happening in the U.S. It was the black population of the South left for the industrial cities of the, of the North and the Midwest. 
right? What's happening in Europe now is the southern Italians are drawn up to the north, uh, and as the Greeks are, are going to what, 10% of the population of Greece is already gone. Uh, it's come here, it's gone to Australia, it's gone to other parts of Europe. Portugal, second largest Portuguese city is Paris. This is a phenomenon of vast inequalities, not to mention the migration from Eastern Europe, where the inequalities between the East and the West are probably the greatest. So one has to think about how you develop a kind of truly functional continental economy. Europe, in its design, didn't do this. And it didn't do this because part of the design was to actually undermine the previously existing welfare states of Western Europe, and particularly in the wake of the end of the Cold War when they weren't as politically necessary as they had been before. And so the idea here is to say, no, they are necessary, but they have to operate at a much broader level. Before this book, which is a, a great articulation in advance on what we had, Yanis uh, Varoufakis and Stuart Holland, a former Labour MP, uh, and I uh, wrote a, a, a small book called The Modest Proposal for Resolving the Problems of the Eurozone. And the modest proposals, the idea was to try and do these things within the framework of the treaties and charters that presently exist. So you don't have to ask people to, to build an entire new political uh, uh, system in order to do this and find things that, that, that are possible through the European Central Bank, through the European Investment Bank, and get going. And then you have something you can show, which will consolidate political support for further changes. So it is, I think, very much uh, draws on inspiration of the, of, of the New Deal. But the New Deal is really understood properly as, as, as what it was in history for us. Uh, not just, uh, you know, not just Roosevelt coming in and, and spending money, but he really thought through what you did with the Tennessee Valley, what you did in Texas with the lower Colorado River Authority and all through the, the country, you can find the, 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 you know, what you did with the Colorado River. Uh, and the, well, the Hoover Dam was already underway, but you know, was, these, things were, these things were transformational. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. So I find many of the proposals made in this volume very attractive. Uh, the question is, how are they to be realized? Right? And it, I'm still struck by the difference between the U.S. and the European Union. Uh, the, the, the United States in the 1930s had a whole federal machinery of... Um, well, it didn't exist in the 1930s. No, the federal but government much more was so 4% of GDP. Still, much more so than the EU. The EU has many more limited powers, right? Right, and, well, the, and the European people have resisted giving it more powers in these votes on the Barcelona right, but if treaty. The, the, right, but just for example, the European Investment Bank is an institution that exists. It is larger than the World Bank, uh, and it has a very big uh, authorities, plenary authorities to do things in a wide range of areas. It's not just you know, major infrastructure projects, roads and bridges, but it can do urban uh, reconstruction, it can do any kind of and, and social projects, all kinds of things. 
Why hasn't it been uh, able to do these? Because under the rules, it requires matching funds from the countries. Greece doesn't have any matching funds, didn't have any money to put up. So it's stuck. So what do the Greeks get to do? They are told to sell off their public assets uh, and to sell them off at ludicrously low prices. Uh, there's, I think, a, in the book, a, a, a comment that the Greek railway system was sold off for $43 million. $43 million. I, uh, just how much, how many miles of roads between here and San Francisco would, would you absorb if you, uh, would take up $43 million? Not very many. Would the scrap be worth more than that? Yes, it would. Who bought it? A bankrupt Italian company. That's only interested in it as a speculative asset. What's going on here? Asset stripping. It's not reconstruction policy. It's not economic growth policy. It's not a development policy. It's no wonder that you know if you have any sensible government, what they're going to do is to take the investments from the Chinese. At least the Chinese go there and build things. Huh? Okay. Um, so if we look... <laughs> If we look at the, I rest my case, Counselor. I think I've got my, <laughs> I've got the jury on my side now. <laughs> no, I think if we look more closely at the EU, for instance, at the uh, European Central Bank, we realize that Mario Draghi was more inclined to interventionist action, but he is now leaving his office. He is probably going to be replaced by Mr. Weidmann from Germany, who is resolutely opposed to any such actions. Right, the European Central Bank cannot, Draghi certainly cannot act or could not act independently. He was constrained by his board. Uh, it was constrained by the European governments, right, particularly the German government. Uh, so, you're suggesting that Mario Draghi is basically a nice fellow who would yes, do the right yes, thing if, if, I do. if he were tied like yes. Gulliver by Lilliputians. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not so sure. I, 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 I'm saying he's more inclined to interventionism than some of these other people that he's surrounded by and who will replace him, in fact. Um, so... Uh, there are these constraints. They were not there in the United States. So uh, part of uh, any political problem, any political manifesto like this one, of course, is that you can demand and project all kind of wonderful scenarios. The question is always, can they be implemented, right? Are, are they really pragmatically viable? And I find uh, a lack of detail here in this book. Uh, and I also find your suggestions very um, uh, amenable, but you still haven't told us exactly how this is to be put into action. Ah, que dites-vous, c'est inutile. Je ne sais, mais on se, on se bat pas dans l'espoir du succès. I mean, you go ahead and do these things. You don't wait and try and figure out whether you can actually make it work. If you, if you, 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 you know, if you, if you do that, you'll never do anything. You'll never get any idea off the ground. Maybe you'll succeed. Maybe you'll fail. But if you don't try, you're certain to fail. And somebody has to come up with some ideas. And that's what Giannis uh, has really been doing. I, I'm a bit player in this. I mean, I, I, I do contribute. I'm a, well, I won't say I'm a bit player. I'm a back office staff guy uh, in this. I, playing, playing a role that I learned is in, on the congressional staff, providing the support that I can uh, from where I sit. Uh, but the people who are engaged in this project are trying to pull together an intellectual and from there a cultural and political movement
that says, okay, what are the values here? Number one, democratization. Number two, economic transformation, including full employment policy. Full employment policy, you know, we have one in the United States that's written into the law. doesn't exist in Europe at the continental level. Uh, and number three, a more human and more le- uh, legally correct and more decent policy toward Europe's human uh, problem, which is, of course, is the migration problem. Those things are good things. And so we're trying to pull good people together to come and say something about them. And that's against a lot of petty and perhaps politically more successful in the short run. Uh, it's against the it's against the neo-fascists on the right. It's against the left wing, the Lexit, the left nationalists who are fading now. And it's against the idea that you don't have to do anything. You, you can just resolutely say that Europe uh, that that the institutions are all right and will just muddle through. I think the 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 uh, experience of Brexit is going to show very clearly that they won't be able to muddle through. We'll see the consequences. So uh, this book has a number of very interesting sections with interesting and illuminating and helpful uh, essays. Uh, they range from part one, democracy, transparency, economics, finally to part nine called arts and culture. <laughs> All very well. What I find missing here is foreign politics. And uh, really the volume treats the problem of Europe as if it was something, an internal problem, when we know that Europe can't act independently of the outside world. There is very little discussion of Trump's America, uh, of what we call might call economic nationalism. Um, there is, as, as an outside force, there is almost no mention of China uh, in this book. There is very little discussion of the post-Brexit European realities. I was actually shocked by one sentence in this book, which doesn't come from James here, but comes from Slavoj Zizek. Let me quote it to you. It says, Europe lies vulnerable in the great pincers of America on the one side and Russia on the other. I was shocked by this because this is an almost direct quote from Martin Heidegger's introduction to metaphysics of 1936. Heidegger, the Nazi, describes Germany as positioned between these two great powers. And this is still how Zizek wants to see the foreign political realities of Europe in 2019. I find that shocking, right? Uh, Incomprehensible. Let's let's explore what what is shocking about it, because I agree with you. It is a bit shocking. It's, as a geographic point, not exactly a novelty. I mean, Europe is still in the same place uh, that it was. (laughs) So... Geologic time doesn't move that quickly. Uh, But it is shocking in the sense that it uh, places the United States uh, in a position very different from the position it has enjoyed for the period from 1945 until, let's call it, let's say, late 1990s. And what's happened? To a great many progressive European intellectuals, and not only progressives, the United States has abdicated a great measure of its moral authority. How so? 
going into Iraq was not a very good idea from the standpoint of the respect uh, that uh, many Europeans uh, held this country in. Uh, One, not just that, but now what are we doing in this administration? In the previous administration, we attempted to reassert our position, but without providing the leadership on crucial issues like climate, uh, that might be expected of us. And it was a basically uh, a very uh, weak uh, form of leadership and very oriented toward the nostalgia of the previous period. And now? <laughs> and now? What's going on? We are behaving openly as the uh, bully of the Western world. Right? And much more aggressively with respect to Europeans, frankly, than the Russians, and certainly than the Chinese. The Russians may do a few things here and there, make a loan to Marine Le Pen, for example, uh, and other things they've been accused of. But us? We're threatening tariffs. We're threatening all kinds of stuff. Uh, and we, we, we backed out after laborious negotiations to get a stable relationship with Iran, which opened up that country to a lot of European investment, and we pulled the plug on that deal, leaving them in limbo. Do you think they're happy about this? No. Of course they're not happy. This is affecting their interests in a very serious way. And now, guess what? These days, we have President Trump offering a huge lifeline to Boris Johnson. Uh, don't laugh. It's going, what's going on right now? What's going on with the with 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 uh, which which will make the idea of a No Deal Brexit much more saleable to the British right than it would have been otherwise? Hey, who needs Europe? We can develop toward the Americans. Ambrose Evans Pritchard, who's an excellent reporter, said today he endorsed this idea. Let, let's dance with them who brings the flowers, he says, and the Americans are bringing them. And we can live with chlorinated chickens, he says. That, you know, he ate a lot of them when he was here and doesn't seem to have suffered any ill effects. And by the way, most of you probably have eaten a few of them. You, you look all right to me. So, you know, this is a... Uh, uh, this, this, is, this is the direction that the U.S. is taking, and continental Europe certainly feels the sting. So I just finished reading a book which I found extremely helpful on this broad topic. It's by a Portuguese uh, politician. He was a government minister in 2015, I think, and a political scientist. His name is Bruno Massarias. Uh, the book is called uh, A Belt and Road, uh, A Chinese World Order, in which he argues that uh, China right now, for its own interests, of course, is pursuing really a policy of economic and cultural and political globalization, uh, whereas America has retreated into an economic nationalism and Europe being positioned between these two, between on the one hand, an, a globalized order of a Chinese kind as one possibility, and the other one being dominated by the economic power of enclosed uh, in the uh, United States. Uh, and he doesn't offer an easy answer to this, but I think 
to my mind, he most more clearly formulates what the problem of the dominant problem of Europe has to be today, namely where to find its place in relation to these other powers. Brexit is only a sideshow in this. It's this question, where does this part of Europe belong in that constellation, right? It's not a separate issue. Uh, but uh, what I find lacking in this uh, treatment here uh, and this democracy in Europe movement is precisely this closed-in look on European problems as if Europe could solve its economic, political and social problems on its own. It won't be able to do that. It has to look at these outside forces. And I think that's where we need to go. Well, it may be that the democracy in Europe movement hasn't yet appointed a foreign minister. That's a possible. I'll, I'll raise that with Yanis. I might be able to serve myself in a kind of my my my, my grandfather was the honorary counsel for Siam. Something similar uh, it's, might might be. But but let me let me come back to this question of China. Uh, the uh, you know what your 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 Portuguese uh, source is I think doing something quite common uh, in Western uh, approaches to China, which is projecting onto that country something like the Western historical sensibility, uh, that it is setting out to seek hegemony. But this has never been the case for China. I spent four years in a consulting role through the UNDP as the, what, grandly titled Chief Technical Advisor to the State Planning Commission of the People's Republic for Macroeconomic Reform, uh, 1993 to 1997. It's a crucial period, actually. Now, I wasn't as influential as... The title's great. My influence was not so great. Uh, they, uh, I mean, basically, my advice to them was stay away from Western advisors. Uh, <laughs> which advice they took, uh, it's done them good. But what was their concerns? They're always much more concerned with... China's a huge country. It's concerned with its internal social stability. And what is the Belt and Road? The Belt and Road has uh, two major things. One is its resource uh, security, bringing in the gas and the oil and the other, and having the trade routes that are not necessarily dominated by the United States Navy or threatened by it. So this is one big thing. And the other thing, perhaps equally big, is they have a huge engineering sector now. They just built 22,000 kilometers of high-speed rail in China. These people have to do something. So, you know, you finish up in China, send them out to Central Asia and have, or Africa or anywhere and have them build roads and railroads there and ports and airfields and, you know, and people like this. People like this. A friend of mine was telling me that, that she used to take three hours to drive from uh, from um, uh, from Entebbe uh, to the capital of uh, Uganda, which is the name of which is now escaping me, Kampala, uh, and it now takes twenty minutes. And guess what? It was the Chinese who built the road. Well, you're going to get a lot of benefits out of that, but the main benefit you get is that the people who are building roads in China, when you no longer need them, are still employed or they're not causing you trouble back at home. Let me correct you just on a tiny little point. Neither I nor Maceo's talked about hegemony, right? We talked about collective action. But um, 
but the problem still is that Europe cannot think about its problems on its own the way that the United States maybe in the 1930s could, right? Because it's surrounded by these major powers that pressure on it. Let me give you just one example. A German export industry has been extremely worried recently because exports have been going down. And the Germans are saying, we used to be able to produce not only particular individual cars or machinery, we uh, would sell and produce and export whole installations, whole industrial systems. This was something that nobody else did. And it now turns out most recently that the Chinese have started to do exactly that, that they can deliver these things at cheaper price than the Germans, and the Germans are losing out. And then you have a direct influence of the growth and power of China on the economies of Europe, right? And so this question, how, how does Europe establish itself in relation to these surrounding powers has to be the ultimate question, even more so well, than it's an any important of these question questions everywhere. that your volume talks yeah. about. That's an important you question. You need to open up for yeah. discussion here. So, Dr. Sluga, time for Dr. Galbraith, I'm going to go ahead. start up with the Speak Q- very Q- loudly because I'm a little hard of hearing. Okay, I'm going to have uh, the first question over here. First of all, thank you, Professor Galbraith, for joining us here at Marin Conversations Commonwealth Club. Um, my question is, we go forward to October 31st, hard Brexit, no deal. What happens in the next 12 months and the next 36 months? to Britain, Northern Ireland, and Scotland. Ah. Wow. Okay. Uh, That's a multi-part question. You're saying on the the proposition of a no deal, which I also think is very likely, and I've I've been saying this for a long time, that, 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 that the dynamics of this are heading toward a crash. Uh. What happens to Britain uh, is a, a, a period of some disruption, which they'll get over, and a devaluation, which will reduce the effect of the strength of the financial sector and mitigate some of the damage to the industrial sector over a period of time. Uh, so that's, I think, I, I'm relatively straightforward. With respect to Ireland, uh, I don't know what happens in 12 or 30, 24 or 36 months, but uh, George Mitchell was at my camp college, actually, the, uh, a few months ago for the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreements, and I asked him whether he had, in his wildest dreams, imagined that he was signing agreements that was so strong it would outlast the United Kingdom, uh, and he kind of smiled. Uh, but I do not see, you cannot put a border uh, between on this, uh, you know, between Ulster and, and the Republic of Ireland, can it be done? It is physically, and politically, and militarily impossible uh, because those territories are are lived in by, uh, the, you know, that was IRA territory. They're simply not going to tolerate it. Uh, so, uh, and it's constitutionally impossible because it's against the Good Friday Agreement, which is a part of the Constitution of the Republic of Ireland. So this isn't going to, this can't happen. So what, and there's no technological fix, so that's magic. So what can happen, only thing that can happen over time, uh, is that the Northern Irish community, which is increasingly demographically Catholic, uh, it's not quite yet a majority, but it's like six points in the last, you know, 
it will be soon. And the Catholics, by and large, have not been unanimous about joining Ireland. But but under these conditions, they will call for a border poll, and under the agreements, they will rejoin the Irish. The Ireland will be unified, and the Northern Ireland will leave the UK. That seems to me the most likely thing. As for Scotland, Scotland is, to put a fine point on it, screwed. Uh, because it, if it crashes out, if the UK crashes out, Scotland crashes out. And it, uh, while the major point in the referendum uh, that kept Scotland in the UK uh, was that this was a way they could stay in the EU, that becomes mooted. They, they're out of the EU. They can't get back in because Spain won't let them back in because of Catalonia. So it becomes an accession country with no prospects of being approved. And so they're basically stuck unless, of course, they come up with, uh, uh, with an idea which I've been somewhat mischievously brooding around, which is why not confederate? And once Ireland is reunited, why not reestablish Dalriada, uh, the ancient confederation of the Celts? Uh, and then Scotland could rejoin the EU as a confederated province of, 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 of Ireland and Scotland. Uh, and once they're back in the EU that way, nothing, nothing would prevent them from separating off again. So uh, there might be a, a way out, but I haven't consulted a lawyer on the point, so I'm not sure how well it stands. Let, let me one add one, we... one thought to this. Um, clearly, I mean, I'm not, not into prediction. I'm a philosopher. I look at the past only. Um, so, um, but clearly what's happening is that as, as Brexit comes closer, the United States will increasingly try to draw the UK into its orbit. It's already started with Trump's state visit to Britain. Uh, the Europe, if it wants to, it needs to really uh, counter this move and it must seek to draw the UK as far back into Europe as it can. It won't be able to do that by simply offering membership in the EU as it now exists. It will have to develop new projects that will bring the UK and the rest of Europe together. And I think there, this volume does actually offer us some helpful indications. Yeah, All right. that, that's clearly the case. The, Europe's approach, and I think we, we agreed on this uh, in a little chatting before the, uh, the, the session, uh, has been oriented toward making life as difficult as possible so as to prevent anybody else from doing the same thing. Well, it's, you know, it's one thing to, to, you know, essentially destroy Greece, a tiny country, seven, 11 million people. Quite another thing to do this to the British, who are a very big part of the European economy. And by the way, they're also not going anywhere. They're, they're, they're still going to be just offshore. Uh, so, uh, coming up with, and Trump is really putting, putting it in their faces that, 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 that they need to have a substantially, substantial change of view, uh, if they're not going to end up with, the, with, with a very interesting, uh, you know, British American condominium, uh, sitting right there, uh, and really, uh, potentially very disruptive force for the European. For the, we have a continent. question over here. Yep. Uh, thank you for your uh, conversation this evening. It's been really informative for me. Uh, I'm not an expert in Europe, but I've learned a lot. A few years ago, in the height of the crisis, uh, there were some ideas being floated around that uh, perhaps were a little simplistic. I'd like to hear your 
uh, reaction to it. The idea was that um, unlike the United States, which is capable of formulating both unified monetary and fiscal policy in order to deal with economic uh, bumps in the road, the, the criticism was that the European Central Bank may be capable of monetary policy, but the European Union as a whole was less capable of a unified fiscal policy in order to do things like subsidies and so forth, transfers of wealth between the sovereign states. And you seem to be talking this evening about the European Central Bank having more broad powers than just monetary policy. You're talking about infrastructure and things like that. So can you elaborate on how the the European structure as it is now might actually be able to address more of the fiscal policy in in the face of the more extreme sovereignty of the individual states? Sure. Uh, there are institutions apart from the European Central Bank. I was referring to the European Investment Bank and the European uh, Investment Fund, uh, which were part of the uh, of, of a, effectively a, a broader continental investment strategy in the modest proposal. The European Central Bank has uh, responsibility for uh, for the currency, but it also could have been used and was part of the modest proposal to use it as the vehicle for transforming the intractable debt position of the countries in crisis, Greece, Italy, Spain and Portugal in particular, and Ireland. Uh, and that was something that we worked out could it be done under uh, existing law without uh, getting into the position where you were raising the interest rates on the German debt uh, because you're using the European Central Bank as, the, as essentially the coordinating vehicle. Uh, so that, that's, though, 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 that's possible. Beyond that... Uh, there are some things which could be done at the European level. A pension union, uh, a, a, we proposed in the crisis a food stamp-like program, which is actually implemented in Greece at the national level in the crisis, 400 euros a month for qualified families. Um, and the, the, these things can be done. Uh, but you're right, the European system has is not designed to have a large-scale continental fiscal transfer. And our idea is to show that this can be made to work uh, on in various ways that are possible under existing law, and then you could perhaps persuade people that, you could, that it's a good idea to broaden out the, the authorities. As far as the... I don't know, your question touches on the euro. Uh, the DiEM uh, passage on that, which is not extensive... Uh, is that the euro is a tool, not 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 a totem? Angela Merkel says that the euro is Europe. Well, it's nonsense. In fact, uh, there are European countries that are not in the euro, including Britain, including Poland, including others, uh, and European countries which are promised to get in but never will because they don't. They're they're better off not coming in, uh, and uh, you know, and the euro itself. Is it has two countries under capital control, Cyprus and Greece, which means that the those bank deposits in euros are not worth the same as the euro in in France or Germany, and uh, the uh, Italians, if 
are on the verge of issuing a, a what they call a mini-bot, a, 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 a negotiable debt instrument denominated in euro, uh, which could be used to pay taxes. So very much like California did in the crisis, by the way. I, I, I called them the, 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 the California IOUs, the Caillou uh, uh, pebbles. Uh, and um, so we had a whole bunch of names that if New York came up with them, it would be the UDs or something like that. Uh, but uh, um, these things can be done, and ultimately it would make sense to rethink the way the euro is structured. Uh, it probably would be better to do that uh, at the central level than to have the situation that we faced in Greece where we were on the verge of being thrown out of the euro. Uh, and I was sitting there thinking, what the hell do we do if that happens and how do we basically mobilize the economy to try and make sure people don't run out of, you know, retirees don't run out of money, very serious problems. That was my job. I cannot say I did it with uh, that with a great deal of confidence that the what I was doing was going to work, and I'm not unhappy that it it didn't happen. We have a uh, question over here. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And why would the United States look towards Europe economically, financially, politically, socially for solutions? Oh, why would we would look? You yeah, why why would we look? Why would the United States look towards Europe to find solution for our problems? Uh, well, at the moment, uh, I, I'm not sure I have a, a any clear idea of what where what area I would look at. Although universal health insurance seems to me like a pretty good plan, uh, and uh, uh, the uh, so, you know, there are institutions which were more fully developed in Europe than they have been here because we tend to operate here on a very, um, uh, what shall we say, a model which, which incorporates the relevant private interests uh, in uh, kind of uh, uh, haphazard ways. And, and the post-war period in Europe, it was possible to build systems that didn't do that. Can we actually get there from here and where we are at the United States? Well, that will depend upon the outcome of the 2020 campaign. I won't reveal to you which candidate I'm supporting, but I don't think it would be very hard to guess. We have another question right over here. The uh, New Deal was an incredible program and plan and all. But the U.S., it seemed to me, had to be in major crisis and in really bad times in order to pull people together. It seems like... uh, like much of Europe was in crisis at that same time. And you have in one area democratic solutions emerging, in the other continent so much of fascists and Nazis uh, emerging as uh, you know, solutions and reactions. So is Europe in a bad enough crisis that it can move to a New Deal type? You know, I guess my view is Europe is in a very fragile state, uh, and you have the potential for uh, the political crisis could break out practically at any time. At the same time, uh, you know, this election didn't provide any clear indication that was going to happen soon. Uh, but let's suppose that there's a significant further downturn 
and they can't handle it, then anything can happen, and it's well to be prepared. Um, a friend of mine, an Italian economist uh, named Mario Pianta, did a little article earlier this last month, and he compared Europe to uh, this the scene of the short story by Herman Melville, Benito Sereno. Don't anybody familiar with this? A Spanish ship has lost sail, supplies, and direction after Cape Horn with a decimated crew and rest of black slaves under the failing command of ill-fated Captain Benito Sereno, closely watched by his black servant. When the British captain of another ship brings food and water to the distressed ship in the dead calm sea, he finds an appearance of order and resigned quiet, hiding a much darker truth. Cape Horn is far from Brussels, but Melville's tale has disquieting lessons for Europe. His economy has stagnated for a decade. Supplies have gone back to the level of 20 years ago for southern European countries. In core Europe, the poorer 50% of the population has barely had an improvement in real incomes. Poverty is increasing everywhere. Still, a visitor to Brussels would find an appearance of calm. Even on the eaves of Europe's elections, there is no action, no critical debate on what has happened, no agenda for economic and political reform, no intention to change the sea route. One could be surprised to find the captain's cabin empty and command exercise from different conflicting posts. Well, okay, that's the description, okay? Herman Melville, 1855. Uh, uh, So can Europe learn something from American literature? Perhaps. Uh, But, you know, at some point... The people who are uh, down in the hold or may try to take command of the ship. We'll see what happens. We have one more question back here. Uh, There was an essay that you wrote uh, based on uh, an extension of the book you wrote, Predator State, in Catalyst. I'm a subscriber. And in there you talk about how there is immense political power that is controlled by a very tiny economic elite that is ultimately determining what all these policies are, uh, certainly in the United States, and from what you said tonight, also in Europe, why on earth would those kinds of powerful forces ever surrender them to help the poor or the the working class in southern Europe or, or anywhere in the United States, for that matter? I can't – your argument was so compelling, I thought, that I threw up my arms. I'm glad I'm doing well in life, but I can – I see so many people in this country are not, and I don't see the will or the way forward for that to change. Well, it was also a dictum of my – my dad's that uh, that the people in power will uh, risk everything rather than yielding even a small amount uh, in order to 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 placate the underlying situation, uh, and that may well be the case. Uh, that is uh, frequently. I mean, there, there are many many examples of uh, of the ships that didn't change course before they were steered into the shoals. Uh, so that's a risk. Uh, at the same time. One has to be. We do have some examples of a, you know, the ability to create a progressive alternative. It happened here in the 30s. It happened in Europe in the 40s. Right? And of course, it was. At, at, these are moments of extreme moments, uh, and that's in some sense the nature of politics is to be prepared for those moments and not to allow them to become the moment when when real fascism uh you know uh, takes complete control that's the that's the that's the game you're in 
We have the uh, second to last. Come question. back to Cyrano to Bergerac, you know. <laughs> so, you know have, let okay. me add one, one comment to this. Um, I, I am a convinced Europeanist. I grew up as a Europeanist. I joined as a little boy. I joined an organization called European Youth. Um, and I have been committed to the European project ever since. And my observation is that people from the outside, maybe like Professor Galbraith, take a much more pessimistic view than us inside. Uh, we believe in this project and we believe in its viability and I think it will go on. Oh, we have one uh, quick question here. You haven't addressed the question of political power. All the discussions that you've mentioned so far have, spoke, have focused on what appears to be goodwill, making the changes that you have been suggesting. Mm-hmm. How is your movement going to create the political will, to, to wield the political guile, to get what you want done within the frameworks that you don't want to change? Well, there is a, a national, uh, international element here called the Progressive International, uh, and it stretches from my friend Yanis uh, Varoufakis in Greece who is right now facing the challenge of a general election, see whether we can get a toehold, uh, or he can get a toehold in his new party, which in Greece is called Mira 25, can move on from the 3% that it did achieve in the European elections. And things changed rather rapidly in Greece because what happened that brought Syriza to power was the collapse of the previous progressive party, PASOK, uh, and when Syriza loses office, it's likely to collapse as well because it doesn't represent a genuine opposition and hasn't since the capitulation in 2015. So maybe something will happen that starts there. Uh, and then in the United States, on the other side of the Progressive International, one does have one does have Senator Sanders, um, and uh, this is being organized with Bernie Sanders' cooperation. In the middle, we have an actual government uh, that is uh, already in office, uh, at the head of a tripartite coalition, uh, and that is in the all-important, strategically vital, uh, and uh, an absolutely indispensable nation of Iceland, uh, 300,000 strong under the leadership of our friend Katrin Jakobsdottir, uh, a dynamo of a, of a politician if I've ever met one. Uh, so, uh, I, and I have to say, I forged the alliance between Varoufakis, Sanders, and and Jacob's daughter. So I'm I'm, I'm proud of that. Uh, but uh, um, okay, I mean, you start somewhere. We'll have to see what happens in a UK general election. It's going to be very interesting. Whatever you think, it's going to come down to a choice probably between a hard Brexit Tory and Jeremy Corbyn. All right, we'll see what happens. All right, and then we'll have France. I don't know uh, whether there's any chance of a reformulation of the left in France. The situation there has always been difficult, and it's now very bleak. We'll see. Well, on that note, uh, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Right? <laughs> uh, not so much. Uh, I want to thank our guests for coming tonight. We had a, a professor of philosophy and a professor of economics. If we could just wrap up tonight with you each giving us kind of a concise view 
uh, about what we think Europe's going to look like just two years from now, and uh, we'll wrap up with your concluding remarks. Well, we are told that economics is that science which can tell us how things will develop and can afterwards explain why they came otherwise. So uh, I leave it to Professor Galbraith. <laughs> well, I, I, was, I was in Rome uh, a, a few weeks ago and I lunched with my closest friend there who is a former finance minister under Andriotti, he's now 96 years old. And he said it's just going to continue as it is, and uh, so that was the that was the view from a long experience. Uh, is it Giuseppe Guarino? I don't know if you know. He's a dean of the Italian constitutional scholars. Uh, the stasis is remarkable, but at the same time, if you look out over the, and I'm not an economic forecaster, there are lots of signs that things are going to get worse, uh, including the extreme depression of bond yields in Germany at the moment. Uh, and you already talked about the, one of the causes of that, which is the falling demand for German exports. Uh, and Germany is the motor of Europe uh, and is the central economic power. So a, uh, a situation in which the economic problems return to a kind of red-hot level is not entirely out of the question, uh, and that will be very hard, but it also raises the question of you know, finally getting to the point where people recognize that, that there needs to be a change of ideas. And then the question is, whose ideas? And there the choice is very stark, because on the one side you have some very dark forces, and on the other side, well, you have a few little coalitions, and the Democracy in Europe movement is the one I happen to be associated with and I think has at least some promise to develop in the face of these challenges. But it's not going to be a yellow brick road that leads to the Emerald City at, a, at any time soon. Well, on that positive note, let's uh, have a hand for our guest tonight, and uh, thank you very much for coming. <laughs>